this and there's absolutely no manual for it. And you, for me, prayed and, and wondered, do you, do you just scrap the whole Sunday entirely? Do you change the message? Do you, what, what, how, how do you walk through this? And one of the things that we came back to is knowing that we, we have a God who, who is sovereign. We have a God who wasn't surprised by this and he knew that this was even the text that we would be in. And there's a bit as we began to think and pray through knowing that in a season like this, there is almost no other answer that can step in except the hope that Advent brings. The acknowledgement that this world is broken. The reality that this is not the way that it's supposed to be. And then creating in our hearts that longing to look forward to and long for the day when our victor will return and crush death once and for all. And so we look back and celebrate Christ's first coming and we set in our hearts a longing for his second. And so we see that there is a tremendous amount of comfort to come back to the manger this morning and see that we worship and serve a God who is not removed, who is not distant. We have a God who stepped into the brokenness. We have a God at Christmas who came to taste our sadness. He whose glories knew no end. What a tremendous comfort to know that our God knows that we serve a God who is a sympathetic high priest, that he's walked through it and he's cried with us. He's crying now and there is a day when that crying will cease. So this morning, we're going to just come around the manger and we're going to look and see what it is God did in the manger and then we're going to ask what our response is to it. And then afterwards, we'll respond with communion. So we're going to continue just to go to his words as the disciples said in John 6. Everyone else had left him and they came to Jesus and Jesus was like, hey, are you going to leave as well? And they responded and said, where else can we go? You have the words of life. And so this morning, it's true for us, where else can we go but to go to the words of life? So we'll be in Matthew 2 this morning. If you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and grab them. If you don't have one, you can use one of the Bibles next to you. It'll be in Matthew 2, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Matthew's the very first book of the New Testament. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the chapter numbers are the large numbers, the verse numbers are the smaller ones. So we'll be in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, seeing what exactly God did in the manger and how he reached out to those in that setting. And then what should our response be? So we'll be looking at the story of when the wise men came to visit the king, when the wise men came to the manger. And we'll be kind of basing, we'll sing afterwards the Christmas carol, O Come All Ye Faithful. It's not necessarily tied directly to this hymn, but it's a, uh, to this text, but it's a beautiful picture of what it is these wise men and these magi did as they came and saw and they came and adored. So we'll be responding afterwards with that song. But quickly to kind of set the scene before jumping right in, I want to kind of give the setting and the context to what's happening here in chapter two. So first, setting who, I want to answer who, when, where, and why. What's going on kind of within this as we jump in. So first, who, who is it that came here in this story? Well, they were wise men. Now there's the, the our nativities have three wise men. Our songs sometimes say three kings. So just to go ahead and answer all the questions, there were not three of them, they were not kings, and they weren't at the nativity. Um, so we just got all of that wrong. Um, but what we see is we see that these were wise men. They were magi. They were stargazers. They were wise men. They were leaders. But they were not kings. 
But they certainly had wealth and they gave three gifts, which is where we think that there was perhaps three of them. But nowhere do we see that there are three. They were not kings. They were counselors to king, counselors to leaders. We see like Daniel in the Old Testament was a magi, was a wise man, a counselor. And one scholar said that, that uh, more than likely what we see is there were less than three, not three of them. There were probably dozens of people and leaders and servants who traveled across the land to come and see this child. So that's who it was. Well, when? When did it happen? Well, it didn't happen at his birth. Again, they came from far away. And it says later in verse 11, they came to a house. So they didn't come to the actual nativity scene. This is months after, maybe even up to 18 months after his birth. After Jesus was born. We see this also in, later in the story where Herod goes to kill all the children born two years and under. He wanted to make sure that if this child was in fact there, that it was uh, taken care of. But where did they come from? They came from the east. They came from far away. From We three kings of Orient are. They got the second half right. So not kings, not three. They came from Orient land. They came from the east. And they came to Jerusalem. And why? Why did they come? They came to worship the king. Let's look now and read Matthew 2, read verses 1 through 12 this morning. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Christ would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what is written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time that the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go, and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way. And there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. And so here we see a number of things in this passage. There's four in particular I want us to to focus on this morning. The four things we're going to be walking through is we'll see the accommodation of God, see the anger of Herod, the apathy of religious leaders, and the adoration of wise men. The accommodation of God, the anger of Herod, the apathy of religious leaders, and the adoration of wise men. So first, the accommodation of God. We see this in verses 1 through 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, their wise men came from the east, and they said, hey, we saw a star that was rising and have come to worship this child. Now, what we see here is a number of things. The thing I want to highlight, though, is see the way in which God spoke to the wise man. The ways in which he connected with them. God communicated with them in a way that they could understand. So God didn't send them an ancient Hebraic text and say, hey, work through these Old Testament prophecies and maybe you'll figure out where the child will be born. These were astrologers who would look up at the heavens and look at the stars 
And so what God did is he brought them a star where it was that they could understand how it is they could see and experience what it was that God was doing. God was accommodating to them, bending down to talk to them. We see God almost bending down like a parent talking to his child, trying to explain what's going on. I remember growing up, we'd go on road trips and we would, we'd have a small little TV in our, um, in our car. I had a VHS player. VHS is like a DVD, but worse. And we had a VHS player. We'd watch movies for you know, 12 hours. And as a kid, I didn't quite grasp what time was. But I asked the age-old question that every child, I think, just is ingrained to ask, hey, are we there yet? How much longer? How much longer? And if my parents responded and said, uh, 12 hours, 11 hours, I'd be like, okay, so like, like in just a second? No, as soon they realized what they needed to do to tell me how long it was is speak to me in a way which I can understand. And soon they began to say, hey, we're four movies away from where we're going. And I could understand that. And what God does here is like a parent, he bends down to the wise man and speaks to them in a way and connects to them in a way that they could understand what it was that was happening. Look at the way that God bent down to them and look at who he bent down to. These were pagans from the East. They were Gentiles. They weren't Jewish. They weren't the ones who, at least in the first century, thought the promises were given towards They were far off. In Bethlehem, where the child was born, Jerusalem was just five miles away. All the social influencers and religious elites would have just been a stone's throw away. But who did God bend down to? To those who were far off. And he spoke to them in a way that they could understand. The other people that God came to were shepherds. Saw this a couple weeks ago. The shepherds were the social outcasts of their day. They were pushed to the outer limits of the city, outside the city limits. And God came to the out rejects, the outcasts, and God came to those who weren't considered a part of the club. God invited them to come and worship the king, to come and see this newborn king. And this is who God was after. He wanted to reach those who knew that they needed saving to the very ends of the earth. God isn't after the impressive. God doesn't draw near to those who have their lives together. God draws near to the brokenhearted. His home is in a humble and broken and contrite heart. And so we know if the people that ask the question, where is God? We can be especially sure today that God is here. That God has bent down to us and is inviting us to come and see this King as well. And we see God reaching to the very ends of the earth, going outside of Jerusalem, going outside of Israel, going to the east to bring these wise men, bending down, speaking to them in a way that they could understand, to bring them to find salvation. The story of Christmas is the story of Christ's mission, to seek and to save the lost, to reach those who were far off and bring them near by His blood. The invitation of Christmas and the invitation of Christianity is not come and get your life together. It is come and adore Him. That is our call this morning, to come and find the joy that our hearts have been searching for, to come and find rest and peace and hope 
and love around a manger. It is all here for you if you will come, to come to Bethlehem and see for yourself. Come and behold him, born the king of angels. That this child was not born just like any other child. He is God made low. Jesus born the king of the Jews. God bends down to us and speaks to us in a way that we can understand. He accommodates to us. He is inviting us to come and adore the king. And so this morning, do you feel angry? Friends, God will come to you in your anger. Do you feel confused? God will come to you in your questions. Do you feel pain? God will come to you in your hurt. God is not waiting for us to get ourselves together before we can come to him. If we lift our eyes, we will see he is bending down and has already come for us. Because we see this accommodation of God. The shepherds didn't have their act together before the angels invited them to the manger. The wise men didn't have all the answer before a star led them to Jesus. But God bent down. And so no matter where you are this morning, I hope you see that God isn't just twiddling his thumbs and waiting for you to get your act together. We don't worship a God who waits. We worship a God that bends down. And the question then for us is the same question that falls now in this text. How will we respond to him? How will he respond to the God that's entered into the brokenness, that's entered into the pain, that has now tasted this sadness that has bent down and is calling and inviting us to come to Bethlehem and see this newborn king. We'll see three different responses in this text that I think reflect, reflect our responses today. Anger, apathy, or adoration. Anger, apathy, or adoration. We see first the responses. The wise men come asking, hey, where is Jesus, this one who was born king of the Jews? We saw the star. We want to come and worship him. First, we'll see the response with Herod. We see him respond in anger in verses three through four. See, Herod heard this. Another reason why we think this is more than just three people, the news reached the very top authority in Jerusalem. And Herod said, hey, I've got to talk to these guys. Who are they? When Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed. Herod was angry at this news. All of Jerusalem was with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and the scribe of the people and asked them where the Christ would be born. Now, why would Herod be angry? Why would his response to a child being born, this king of the Jews, what would that have anything to do with him who was placed by the Roman Senate as the king of Judea? He was the highest authority. Why would he worry about a child that would be born, maybe in the backwater of the country? Why would he get so mad? Because he's the king of Judea. And he's heard a rumor going around that there's a new king that's been born. And he knows in his mind that he didn't have any children recently. And he's trying to figure out what it was that's happening here. And so he comes to bring these foreign dignitaries around him. What do you mean a king of the Jews has been born? Now, it's important for us to know a little bit about this man named Herod. We had the opportunity um, a couple months ago to go to Israel and see some of the structures that still exist that Herod built. One of which is a, a fortress called Masada. It's on like this mountaintop, kind of flat mountain plateau. And he built this fortress in case everyone turned on him, he could retreat up to here and be safe. Um, the man was incredibly paranoid. He was politically shrewd. He was wealthy. He craved power. He was an excellent administrator. He reigned for a long time in Israel. He was responsible for much of the wealth and construction in Israel, including the Jewish temple that was rebuilt. 
was Herod's temple. It was this incredibly impressive man, but as clever as he was, he was also incredibly paranoid. So much so that he killed a number of his close associates later in life, including his wife and two of his children, because he worried they were going to come and try to overthrow his power. And so he's so paranoid, and so we ask, why could he be so mad? How could he be so mad about these random magic men looking for a baby that had nothing to do with the wise man? It was with who the wise men said they were coming to see, the king of the Jews. And in that, Herod heard someone that was going to start encroaching on his power, on his authority, and on his life. He said, wait a minute, that was my job. Is there some backwater prophecy that's going to try and overthrow my rule, kind of bring this uprising? He said, I'll take care of that. And that explains the explosion later on when he goes to wipe out all of the children under two years old in and around Bethlehem. Because he wanted to make sure that nothing came and touched his control. There was something that was threatening it, and he liked having that authority and did not want to give it up. And now we don't encounter many that respond to that level of anger that Herod did. There are still people around the world that do, and there are people that really hate Jesus and all those who follow him. But here, especially in America, in Claremont, it takes a much more subtle form. That at its core, Herod didn't want someone else to be king. He wanted to be king. There's still a similar response that many have to Jesus today. We might be okay with him as a moral teacher or as a positive example or as an ethicist or a religious sage or a philosopher, But when he claims to be king and begins to intrude on our life, that's when he's gone too far. We don't want to give up control of our life to another and we respond like Herod and want to push him away. And the fundamental question is not whether or not we want Jesus to be a king. Whether or not we want a king in our life at all or whether we think Jesus is a good king, if we agree with his policies. The primary question we have to explore is whether or not Jesus is in fact who he said that he was if he is in fact the King of kings and Lord of lords, if he is in fact that promised one of old, the one in the Old Testament scriptures that we're pointing to, that we're promising, this Messiah that would come, the one that would crush the serpent's head, the one that would bring breath blessings to the end of the earth, the one that would establish an eternal and everlasting kingdom of peace, Could this be him? Is he in fact the ruler of the universe and creator and sustainer that holds it all together? Does he sit sovereignly on his throne? Is he in fact who he said that he was? God in the flesh and dwelt and born in a manger, growing up and having a three-year ministry that changed the world. Three years of his public ministry that now 2,000 years later, across the world, in a cafeteria in Mineola, Florida, we are talking about. Friends, what has the last three years of your life looked like? Mine has been fairly forgettable, apart from a few more pounds that I've added. But Jesus, in three years, changed and turned the world upside down. Is he who he says that he is? He came and he lived a public ministry. He did public miracles. He raised people from the dead publicly. He fed thousands publicly. People who couldn't walk at all their entire lives started walking 
publicly. These weren't backroom tricks for good friends that Jesus slid cash and said, hey, make sure and go tell people that I'm doing this. He did it in front of hundreds. He died a public death. He was buried in a public tomb and then he was raised and afterwards didn't just appear to his closest friends, appeared to over 500 witnesses that were still alive at the time in public and he then ascended to heaven in public where he now sits on his throne until he comes again to usher his perfect kingdom in and reign as the perfect king for his perfected people. Is he in fact that king? And as a result of that question, we should be asking is this true? And not do I like it? Is it true? Is he in fact that person? Does he hold that kind of authority? Does he hold that kind of power? And does he really offer us that kind of hope? And so if you're here and you're wondering, do you want a king? Ask the question, is he the king? Is he the king? Explore that. Because if he is, I'm going to be straight with you. It doesn't matter if we like it or not. He is the king. And what kind of God would we want that only agrees with us all the time anyway? My, my future version of myself won't even agree with me today. And so why do we seek a God that agrees with everything that we believe? Does it not, does it not somehow argue the point that God is in fact true, that he presses in on every single culture that ever exists and draws us to something greater. He is challenging us. He's bringing us to something more true. Don't respond like Herod and try to push the king away. The king has come and the king is coming. Friends, come and adore him today. Come to Bethlehem and see for yourself. Bend your knee, giving all of our glory to Christ the king. So Herod's response was anger at the possibility of another king in Judea. But how is he going to find out if there's any validity to these claims? If they're actually true, if he should actually be worried about them? If there's any ancient text that might refer to a future king or a promised ruler, how can he, a Roman aristocrat, find out about Jewish prophecies? Well, he then goes and brings religious leaders to him to ask those very questions. And we see the response then of these religious leaders in their apathy in verses five through eight. And so as Herod then is worried, he's angry, he's deeply disturbed, he says, I've got to find out in this is, if this is true. And so he calls and asks these chief priests and scribes where the Christ would be born. So quickly, I won't get into much of the history behind this, but the chief priests were the Sadducees, the scribes were the Pharisees. These two groups did not like one another. They really did not like one another. So what Herod did is he brought in these two people that were enemies, and he said, listen, I'm going to ask these people that don't like each other separately. And if they agree, then I'll know it to be true. And so he draws them in and asks them, hey, a uh, question for you. Where is the Christ to be born? And their response in verse five, they say, in Bethlehem of Judea. Because that's what's written by the prophet. And then they quote Micah 5.2 and 2 Samuel 5.2. So it's going to be in Bethlehem. And so out of that will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. They both answered the same. The king would be born in Bethlehem. They knew the answer. They were exactly right. And at the time, Bethlehem was unimpressive. That's why even in the prophecy, it says, by no means are you the least because you're unimpressive because out of you will come a ruler. 
Let me go ahead and just blow up any beautiful images you have in your mind of what Bethlehem is like today. It is still very trashy today. And I just think that's incredibly comforting of who our God is. That in the moments where he came and entered into this world, there are not these, this grand shrine. It's out of this rundown city. And that's the way of our Lord. He picked kind of backwater towns, small countries in Israel, a small town within Israel of Nazareth for Jesus to be raised, a small town in Israel in Bethlehem for him to be born. Even in the place where some believe the crucifixion and the resurrection happened, it's now a bus stop. And I go, God, that's absolutely the way of your kingdom. You don't build this huge shrine for people to line up for hours to pay money to. It's now forgotten. And there is not because you are no longer there. And there is now this spiritual kingdom that is coming. Your way is humble and brokenhearted. Of course it is. And Bethlehem was unimpressive. But from this little town of no great renown, the Lord had a promise to keep. And these religious leaders knew the promise. They knew where the king would be born. And now they knew that there were people looking for that king. So they knew the promise. They knew the prophecy. They knew the king was coming to that city. And now they knew that there were people who were looking for that king. And so what do they do? Do they join them saying, is this in fact the one? Has he come? All of the brokenness that we feel is the promised one finally come. This one from Isaiah 9, 6 that they absolutely knew. Has he now come? Will the government be placed on his shoulders? Do they join the wise man to come to Bethlehem and see? No. They didn't do anything. They just stayed. And the wise men went alone. And they knew all the right answers, but it didn't lead them to worship. It didn't lead them to come and seek and find the king. And they remained apathetic and indifferent. Friends, if you can quote theology textbooks and argue why presuppositional apologetics is the best way to engage skeptics, that you have a short fuse with your spouse or your kids, or you have a tight grip on your stuff, or it's far too easy for you to talk about people behind their backs, let me just be straight with you. You are no different than these priests and scribes. We may know the right answer, but we do not adore the right answer. Our life remains apathetic, and Jesus remains a nice addition that we bring into our lives when it's convenient. Not challenging our feelings or our thoughts or our emotions. When was the last time Jesus challenged something that you believed? or challenge something that you wanted, or challenge something that you felt? And then when was the last time in that battle that Jesus won? Friends, if the word of God isn't challenging and changing our lives, then we're not seeking him. None of us are perfect. And we come and we submit ourselves into that king. And so may we not just know the right answer and remain kind of an arm's length away. May we come and adore him. And I just find it so interesting. The ones that knew all the right answers were the ones who stayed home. It was the Gentiles who were unfamiliar with the promises that came, that God came to them. And that's why our mission is to make disciples who don't just know, but also treasure and obey Christ. We don't just know the right answers, but that then seeps down into our hearts, that it changes our affections, it changes our devotions. It changes our worship. That we don't just sit and begin to spout off right answers. 
but that gets down into our hearts and begins to change our desires. It begins to change what it is we treasure, and that then leads and shapes what it is that we do. We don't just want to know about him. We want to know him. We want to treasure him. We want to adore him. And that brings us now to the wise men and their response in verses 9 through 12 as they came in adoration. So Herod responds in anger to this God that bent down. The religious leaders responded in apathy, knowing the right answers, but not acting on it. But what did the wise men do? Look at verses 9 through 12. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen rising. It led them to, uh, until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Now look at verse 11 and 12. Look at what they do. Then entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell to their knees and worshiped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts. How did the wise men respond? They saw him, they adored him, and they gave to him. They beheld the king. They looked to him. And in seeing him, that created in their hearts worship and unexpressible joy. It created in their hearts adoration for this promised king. And then that led to them, them offering gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Friends, this is the blueprint for the Christian life. Seeing leads to worship, and worship leads to offering. Beholding leads to adoration, and adoration leads to obedience. And for many of us, I know, I'm sure you're like me as well, we struggle with this thing called the Christian life. And we struggle to take the next step. And the danger, I think, is kind of hardwired in us. Our culture doesn't help. The danger is that as we're struggling in this Christian life, we step back and we go, okay, if I'm struggling, I need to kind of try to fix my obedience. Let me put in a better system in place. Let me make sure I'm doing the right things. Let me try to alter and kind of change outwardly what's going on. And friends, if we continue to do that, one of two things will happen. One, we will either run ourselves into the ground because you do not have the power to change yourself. Or two, you might change externally, your heart will remain unmoved, and you'll become incredibly self-righteous like the Pharisees. And the danger is that in our struggle for the Christian life, we look externally and try to just fix But what we see in this chain with the wise men is that if we are struggling with our offering, with our giving, with our obedience to Jesus, the problem isn't what we're doing, it's what we're loving. And how do we grow in our love and affection? We make sure we come and we behold. We come and we adore. We come and we look. This is our ministry philosophy. Not, hey, try harder. It is this, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim. And the light of his glory and his grace. And we turn and we look, we see, we behold And as we behold, our hearts begin to be moved and we begin to feel the adoration of our King. And as we adore Him and as we worship Him, then we begin to flow in obedience and in offering. 
We cannot just try to beat ourselves into submission. Our main problem is, are we beholding Jesus? Are we looking to him? Because this is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, and we'll get to this in just a few um, weeks into next year. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3, he's writing to this church and he tells them that there is coming a day right now. We all with unveiled faces, we're looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being then transformed into that image from glory to glory. Paul is saying, do you know what you need to strive to do? Look and behold the glory of God. Stare at it until you see it. You say, I can't see it. That's okay. Keep looking. And we behold, and as we behold, we begin to be transformed. That we become what it is we behold. And we have to see that our issue is what it is we are looking at as we look to Him. And as we look to Him, it creates in our hearts worship. As we don't just know Him, we treasure Him. We don't just treasure Him, we obey Him. We then come and we give. We offer. You go, is this talking about money? I mean, it is, but it's talking about so much more than that. If you read the New Testament and think that giving is only about 10%, you have missed the message of the New Testament. Jesus calls for so much more than just a percentage of an income. He calls for our lives. For all of it. Love, so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. That's what Jesus is after, saying, give me your life. Offer it in worship to be able to come with open hands and a blank check saying, God, you are worthy of my praise. You are worthy of my worship. And so here, I give you my life to do with it what you will because you are a good and a gracious king that I see here around this manger. The promised one who has come and the promised one who will one day come again. Then in the midst of unknown, in the midst of pain, in the midst of brokenness and unbearable grief, God, we can still come and say that we can trust you taking the next step even when we don't have the answers god we trust you and we will worship you and we'll give you our lives that you are worthy of that that we may be living sacrifices and friends i just wonder over the last few days as i've had conversations and the privilege of being able to hear about an incredible young man and i hear about the way that he was thinking about going to college to become a nurse to be able to open up doors for international missions. Prince Jacob understood this. He saw his king. He loved his king. And he offered his life to his king. A blank check, open hand, saying, God, you do with my life what you will because you are worth it. Oh, and God, would you give our church that kind of faith? Would we have just a hint of that? For some reason, we grow up as adults and begin to just get lost in the details and think about the next step. Keith and Chrissy, I have been praying these last couple days that our church would have a faith like his. That we could follow him as he followed hard after Jesus. He is an incredible example for us to strive for, to have this kind of faith, to have this kind of offering. That we would see our King and love him so deeply and respond as he did. May this shake us from apathy. May this shake us from anger. May we look forward to the day when we will see him again. 
And until that day, may we respond like Jacob did and offer our lives, our hearts, everything. May we see our King. May we worship Him. And may we give to Him. 2,000 years ago, God became flesh and dwelt here among us. Jesus showed us how God bends down to where we are. He's calling and inviting each of us to come and see the King. What will your response be this morning to this King? Anger and rejection like Herod? Apathy and indifference like the religious leaders? Or adoration and worship like the wise men? Hear the invitation of God this morning. Oh, come, let us adore Him. Oh, come, let us adore Him. Let us get a band of misfits together and travel to Bethlehem and stand around the manger and see that this is Christ the King and adore Him, Christ the Lord. Jesus came once and He will come again. This is what Advent is all about celebrating his first coming and looking forward to his second. Because when he comes again, what will happen then, what Jesus will bring with him, the Bible tells us that when he comes in Revelation, he's actually going to bring a gigantic party, a huge feast. It's actually described as a wedding reception, the marriage supper of the lamb in Revelation. As Jesus returns for his bride, the church, and there's going to be this incredible feast and all of his people will sit around that table and sin will be finished. Death will be destroyed. Tears will be wiped away. And we will have perfect communion with each other and with our God. And when we take communion here each and every week around this table, it is meant in a way to remind us of that perfect communion we will have around that table. To set in our hearts remembering what Jesus did on the cross but also setting in our hearts the longing and the hope and the promise of the table that is to come. And often during the Lord's Supper, it feels so somber. It feels so heavy as we reflect heavily on Christ's death in our place for our sin. And that's absolutely true to remember Christ's sacrifice. It is also true at this supper that we look forward to that better supper, to that great feast. We get to come today and taste in part what it will be like to have in full. So friends, I want us to respond. I think there's no better way than to respond in this service and to come now to the Lord's table, to come now to communion, to look forward to that day, to proclaim his death until he comes again. As we long for the day when that king comes, when he brings with him his kingdom, when he brings with him that perfect peace, and when there will be perfect communion there. So we come now as the family of Christ, to gather around the table of Christ, to remember and look forward to that day. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I'm so glad that you are here. One of the things that death does is it makes us stare at the face of our mortality. And if you're here, I, I hope that this is a place where you feel welcome. I hope this is a place where you feel like you can ask questions that you have. The, that maybe in a church you go, oh, I can't really say these kind of things. You can hear. We love those conversations. And we hope that you can ask doubts or skepticisms as you may have. And if you have those questions, please come grab me afterwards. Grab my card on the table outside. Shoot me an email. I would love to go get lunch or coffee with you to talk through why it is we can have a hope like this in the midst of this kind of grief. But here this morning, instead of coming and taking communion, I hope that you would take Christ instead. 
that you would hear the hope that's extended to you today if you would turn and trust in him. If you are here and you're a baptized believer, this table is open to you. As we come now to do what it was that Jesus told us to do, and Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And so we come now to remember that promise and to look forward to that day. That there is a joy and a hope and a certainty in this supper. As we come and we get broken pieces of bread and small cups of grape juice, let it turn our minds to the hope and the feast that is to come. And so friends, come to the table today and touch the certainty of your hope. Taste the promise of His grace and feel the unshakability of your joy. Come and take the bread, take the cup, and proclaim that Christ has died, but Christ has raised, and Christ is coming again. So prepare our hearts, prepare your hearts to respond. Whenever you're ready and the communion servers are in place, you can come.